want to greet any visitors that are here. We are currently in a series on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So, um, if you have a Bible, why don't you just turn to um, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, please. And we'll move from there. The message tonight is um, a word of knowledge, wisdom, and discerning of spirits. It's the second teaching on the series of the gifts of the Spirit. And um, the gifts of the Holy Spirit have been um, abused and misused by so many Pentecostal circles that they have um, brought about much confusion and ridicule to the body of Jesus Christ. Not to mention fear and a, a total rejection of the gifts by others. We have studied um, the baptism of the Holy Spirit last time and its relationship to the gifts. And, and we learned some very important uh, facts about the relationship because there's so much confusion. No one gift, we said, or group of gifts of the Spirit are the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Gifts of the Holy Spirit at times accompany the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but not always. So we clearly saw that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is for empowerment and service, is distinct from the gifts, though sometimes they're associated. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is to receive that power to be witness for Jesus in the service of Jesus. Acts 1.8 we saw. And Jesus made it very clear. And he uses the word, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, so we should not fear in using the same phrase. And remember, there's about eight different phrases that are synonymous with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit itself being one of them. Now, the true evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is empowerment for service then, by the words of Jesus Christ. And so the motivation for service is to be the fruit of the Spirit, agape love. And we made that distinction also. That the empowerment is for service and the motivation for service is agape love. And they're two distinct things. So you can't make them the same. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is received by faith just as you and I receive our salvation. God said, if I acknowledge my sinfulness and believe that he died in my place for my sins, I can call upon him and be saved by grace through faith. No feeling, no emotion, nothing. If I believe that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit and I can ask him to baptize me, then I receive it by faith like anyone else. And there was a distinction between man baptizing and water, which you can do, I can do. John the Baptist did. But Jesus never baptized anybody in water. To make sure that he is the only one that baptizes people in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. No one else can baptize. It's Jesus. We can pray for each other. We can lay hands on each other or not lay hands. But it's Jesus who's the baptizer of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, in view of this, we want to begin our study of the gifts of the Holy Spirit by making some preliminary statements about the gifts that will be foundational to all of them in our series in the weeks to come. Many profess that some of the gifts of the Spirit were only for the apostolic age. And you've heard this taught and 
repeated by others, such as tongues, interpretation of tongues, miracles, healings. Well, going along that the rest of them still continue. Well, you cannot be selective and say these cease and these continue. Because there's nowhere in Scripture we can find that. That's a denominational presupposition of whatever denomination may teach that. Okay? But you can't choose some and, and say the others continue. Now, the only thing wrong with that, again, is the Scriptures deny and refute that theory. Romans uh, eleven twenty nine: the gifts um, um, are not removed from, from, from the individual. So they are here. First Corinthians 1, 7, Paul says that they were waiting for the second coming. He says he thanked God that they were endowed with every gift, lacking no gift until the return of Jesus Christ. So in 1 Corinthians 1, 7, it's very clear that the gifts were until the coming of Jesus Christ. He says, you are blessed and endowed with all gifts until the coming of Christ. So in that introduction, Paul admits that those gifts would be present when the Lord returned for His church. Those that reject the gifts for today try to prove it by um, also the passage in 1 Corinthians, which says that when that which is perfect has come in 1 Corinthians 13.10, that which is in part will be done away. And they say that it refers to the word of that. A word of God, that which is in part. Okay? The gifts, when that which is perfect has come, they say that which is perfect is the word of God. So now that we have the word of God recorded, that is complete and the gifts that are in part are done away. Well, that's foreign to the text, first of all. That interpretation sounds good, but it's not very sound. Two reasons. The Word of God is not complete in terms of what God wanted to reveal but chose not to reveal at all. For when John was about to write in Revelation 10.4, what the seven thunders uttered, a voice from heaven told him to seal up the things and not write them. So we don't have all the revelation in the book of Revelation. God says, don't write that. That's one aspect. The other fact is that every Greek scholar interprets that which is perfect as the Lord Jesus Christ, not the Word of God. And when He comes, then that which is in part shall be done away. So that which is perfect by every Greek scholar, they indicate that refers to Jesus Christ, not the Word of God. So... For those two reasons, that type of exegesis or teaching is completely unbiblical. Now, the believer is told not to be ignorant concerning spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, 1. Now, do you believe that God had Paul write to the Corinthians because they had problematic uh, gifts going on by abusing and misusing them? That he would write there, don't be ignorant about them? And that these epistles would come down 2,000 years into the church and they would not exist down the road and not give us any instruction that they would cease? Of course not. Chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians 13 and 14 
was written for the purpose of correcting the misuse and abuse of the gifts being correctional, followed by the proper instruction. So, in chapter 12, he enumerates some of the gifts. In chapter 13, he teaches that agape love should be the motivation for the gifts when they're exercised. Not that love substitutes the gifts as many teach. Chapter 14 deals with the three problematic gifts, tongues, interpretations of tongues, and prophecy. And he gives instructions very clear on how to judge them, how to exercise them, and how to deal with them. Nowhere in, and you have to study those three chapters together. You never separate them. So you have the list of the gifts, the motivation and love between them, and the problematic gifts. You can't separate them. Never is 1 Corinthians 13 ever saying that now that agape love is here, the gifts are being substituted by agape love. That's absolutely dishonest exposition. You can never get that on your own reading. Now, a Christian cannot curse Jesus by the gifts of the Spirit. You've heard some people say, well, you know, my mom was in a meeting and her mom said that she, you know, they said that this guy got up and cursed Jesus, you know, and in tongues or whatever, and, you know, and all these kind of stories that come down. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3 says that no one by the Spirit can curse Jesus, okay? If a Christian is being filled with the Spirit of God to prophesy or to speak in tongues, they cannot and will not curse Jesus. Now, someone else can get up and say that and say they're Christians, but a believer with the Spirit can never do that. God's not the author of confusion. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 tells us. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. 1 Corinthians 12, 5 tells us. And there are diversities of activities, but the same God. 1 Corinthians 12, 6 tells us. You have the Holy Trinity involved in the gifts of the Spirit. Diversity of gifts. We all don't have the same gift. The illustration is the body. Different parts. Yet it's one complete body, many members. Different ministries, but it's the same Lord. Diversity of activities, how it's manifested, what it's done. But all three persons are involved in the ministry of the gifts of the Spirit. The believer is told to not deny them or to do away with them and not to forbid them. In 1 Corinthians 14, towards the end, verse 37 through 40, Paul, after giving instruction on how to judge tongues, how to exercise them, interpretation of tongues and prophecy, the distinction between them. When we get there, we'll deal more in depth with that. He finishes saying, do all have the gifts of teaching? No. Do all have the gifts of this? No. No. Everybody has a gift of tongues? No. He says, and forbid not to speak in tongues. Now, do you think Paul's going to say forbid not to speak in tongues when God all along was going to bring the gifts to a ceasing point? knowing that the epistle of Corinthians was going to come down 2,000 years into the church? That's ridiculous. And there are very intelligent men, highly educated, PhDs, that teach this stuff, completely contradicting the Word of God. Others attempt to present the gifts of the Holy Spirit as if they were 
meritorious as a mark of spirituality. That's another misnomer. Some people look at people and because they can exercise certain gifts, they think that they are more spiritual and that the gifts are marks of being spiritual. Nothing can be further from the truth. Gifts of the Spirit are for the edification of the body of Jesus Christ. The gifts of the Spirit that are given to you and myself, they're not for me. They're for others. This hand has never helped itself in the 65 years I've known it. It has helped the rest of my body. You can have gifts and exercise them, but you can be 100% carnal. Your motivation is wrong. You do it out of pride. You do it to be seen. People will receive the benefit, but you will receive no reward before God. Are we clear on that? So to say that gifts are evidence of spirituality is absolutely unbiblical. And contrary to the evidence of so much abuse and misuse of the gifts in the church of Jesus Christ. God through the grace or His grace has given to us everyone the measure of faith. We cannot boast about it. Romans 12.3 tells us to each one has been dealt the measure of faith. And so God knows the amount of faith, the message of faith that you need for the gifts that God imparts to you. So if He calls you, He anoints you, He enables you, and you're able to function within that gift. God disperses severally as He wills. 1 Corinthians 12, 11, 18. In Ephesians 4, 7. And Romans 12, 3 and 6. So in other words, you and I don't choose the gifts. God severally and, 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 and sovereignly divides those gifts according to His will and His purpose and His perfect judgment. Therefore, not all of us have the same gifts, nor are they manifested the same way. In 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6, the different operations, you may have the gift of evangelism, but you manifest it on one-on-one. You're a great evangelist on one-on-one. Another person may have the gift of evangelism, but it's done through music. Another person may, may be great going out into um, the marketplace and, and, and go out like an old town on, on Friday, Saturday night and, and, and God just blesses them. Where you, you go out there and man, you, you get all freaked out. So the same gift is being manifested and operated in different ways. Okay? The illustration of the body makes this very, very clear in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, 14, 12 through 24. No part of the body can say, I have no need of you. The ear cannot say to the mouth, I have no need of you, or, or vice versa. The whole body put together receives the messages from the head. The head is Jesus Christ, and He's the one that's in control. He puts it all together. One head. Many members in the body of Jesus Christ. You think that we would get that clear message since we have a body. And our hands obey the head, not the other hand. And this hand has never compared itself to this other hand. But people in the body of Jesus Christ are so carnal at times, they're always comparing themselves among themselves so they're not wise, like Paul says. And they're competing rather than seeing themselves as compliments to the body and the work and the glory of God. 
Now the purpose of the gifts is that there be no schism in the body and there be effective service. We don't all have the same gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 25, Romans 12, 3 through 6, and Ephesians 3, 7. That there be no schism, he says in Corinthians. Now the word schism means a split or a gap. The root word speaks of not having a unity, a coordinating function like a severed spinal cord. Wherever that cord is severed, from that point down, those limbs or that area is not going to be able to receive the message from the head. And so when people are not functioning under the anointing, the direction of the Spirit of God according to their gifts, then they're functioning in carnality. And they're not in unity with the Spirit and the direction of the head, Jesus Christ. And they're doing their own thing. And we see this often in Pentecostal groups that are extreme and in, in, in vocal and in demonstration that is total confusion. It's almost like you're at the circus. Maybe you don't know what I'm talking about, but when we were first saved, we attended Assembly of God's. Now, let me say this. We are Pentecostal. That means that we believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit till the Lord returns. But we believe that they're operated decent and in order according to God's Word. That makes a big difference. When we attend the Assembly of God, you've got people rumping, jumping around. You've got people tonguing out. You've got all kinds of stuff right in the middle of Sunday morning service or stuff like that. It is crazy interrupting the pastor and everything else. If God is speaking through the pastor, He's not going to interrupt Himself to speak through prophecy with someone on the pew. Let's give God a break. Let's not blame God for our stupidity and our carnality. Gifts are essential for the life of the body of Jesus Christ. It's an organism, not an organization. You can live without limbs, but you can't function very effectively, right? A body without gifts, a church body without gifts, is like a body without limbs. It's paralyzed. Now, the gifts are listed for us in Romans 12, 4 through 8, 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10 and 28, and Ephesians 4, 11, the administerial gifts, Evangelists, pastor, teachers, so on and so forth. And in 1 Peter 4.10, it tells us that we have at least one gift and it's to be used for the edification of the body. So we know that every one of us have at least one gift, at the very least, probably more than one gift that you exercise or at least are supposed to be exercising. All the gifts should be exercised decent and in order again. 1 Corinthians 1440. God is not the author of confusion. All believers are to know God is not the one who confuses a service or brings chaos, but man. 1 Corinthians 14.33. He's a God of order. All believers are to understand that unless the motive is agape love, there will be no reward to their service. Though that service may be effective and beneficial towards others, 
they themselves will receive no reward. Very, very clear. 1 Corinthians um, 13, 1 through 8, and uh, chapter 4, verse 5. Now every and all believers are capable of obtaining gifts when they are born again. We've already gone through that last week. The requirement for the baptism and for gifts is that you're born again. Born again is the absolute basic requirement for the baptism and the gifts. Do not confuse the gifts with spirituality and maturity. You can be immature and have gifts and misuse them and abuse them to bring attention to yourself and to work in the energies of the flesh. We're to earnestly desire the best of the gifts, which are those that edify the church. 1 Corinthians 12.31 says, those that build up others. All gifts edify the church except for tongues, unless it's interpreted. 1 Corinthians 14.12-14, when we get the tongues, we'll go in depth in that. So, tongues is the only gift that you don't even know what you're saying. Others don't know what you're saying. But it's your gift, your prayer language. Paul says, I can sing in the Spirit. I can talk in the Spirit. I can pray in the Spirit. Either way. Okay? But if tongues is interpreted, then it's understood and it serves the function of prophecy. Edifies, exhorts, and comforts. And when we get there, we'll deal with that. When we speak about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, it's important to distinguish them from natural abilities and talents. They are supernatural gifts of the Spirit, not talents, not abilities that come natural or that you've learned. Many people confuse those and they think, well, you know, I'm, I'm a great musician. Well, good. You may have just picked it up by t- natural talent or you may have gone to school for it, but that's not one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, God can call you to lead worship and He can anoint you to lead worship by His direction and complement your talent. But there's no such gift as playing guitar or piano, Right? It's the gift that God would give you to lead worship. The calling, the anointing. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are supernatural gifts. The Holy Spirit is both the source and the agent. All the gifts are operated by God. Again, sovereignly, as He wills, when He wills, except for one gift, and that's your prayer language, or what is commonly known as tongues. You can turn that on, you can turn that off anytime you want. It's the only gift that you have control of. The gift of healing, gift of faith, word of knowledge, as we'll see, all of these, God operates them when He wills. You cannot turn them on and off. Okay? For if you had the gift of healing, you would not be showing off in the church you would be going down to children's hospital and touching children and healing them if you could do it at will. Are we clear on that? Real simple. Okay? Now, having said all this, let's begin the study of these gifts. 
yet not in specific order. We're going to change them a little bit as they're found. But by their categories, starting with the gifts of revelation, which are three. The gifts of revelation. A word of knowledge, a word of wisdom, and discerning of spirits. First, the gift of a word of knowledge. Here in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 8. Notice, about in the middle there, we're going to take them in reverse order. To another, the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. The definition of a word of knowledge is as follows. A supernatural revelation by the Holy Spirit given to an individual of facts, information, or detail with the impossibility of him or her obtaining it by natural means. In other words, God gives you information about someone dealing with the present or the past directly. You didn't talk to anybody. Nobody called you. Nobody sent you a text. You weren't FaceTiming. God told you. That man is an adulterer. That woman is whatever. Or that person did this. That is a word of knowledge. It deals with the past and the present. The word of knowledge is not having the ability to read minds. Or to be able to know personal facts as you wish about someone. God is the one who's revealing the information. Sometimes people, oh no, he's, he's I don't want to get by him because he doesn't know what I'm thinking. There's no way. That's not, that's not the gift. The gift of a word of knowledge, having been received, does not mean you will manifest it all the time, every time. Evident as Elisha was surprised that God had not told him about the child's death, if you remember, in 2 Kings 4.27. He said to Gehazi, his servant, let her alone. She clung to him. For her soul is in deep distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Elisha was surprised that God didn't tell him about the death of the child. I'm surprised when God tells me. A word of knowledge. There you have a word of knowledge. The Old Testament gives us many examples of this. And now if our definition to this point about a word of knowledge is correct and biblical then we should be able to see this evidence both in the Old and the New Testament without twisting the Scriptures. In 1 Samuel 3, 11 through 13, God told Samuel as a young boy at Shiloh, you remember, he's at Shiloh. He's about to judge Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, for laying with the women and ripping off the, the offerings and everything else. And Eli, the father, never stopped them. It deals with the past and the present. And he tells them all about it. 
He tells little Samuel, I'm going to wipe them out because this and that. And when Eli comes in the morning, he says, Samuel, what did God tell you? Oh, nothing. Listen, you tell me the whole truth or may it happen to you what he's going to do to me. And he just blurted it all out. God gave him a word of knowledge. In 1 Samuel 10.22, Saul was to be made king and he couldn't be found, if you remember, by the people that are looking for him. So they inquired of the Lord and the Lord told them that he was hiding among the stuff in the old King James. A word of knowledge. No one knew where he was. God told him where he was. A word of knowledge. It dealt with the present, where he was. In 2 Kings 6, 9 through 12, God was telling Elisha the plans of the Syrian army, if you remember. And he then would tell them to the king of Israel. And so... The king of Syria said, listen, okay, who's the traitor? One of you is giving our, our strategies away. And the guy said, oh, no, no, you got to understand. No one, there's no traitor among us. There's a prophet who even knows what you tell your wife in bed. And so you know the rest. They went and they sent after him, okay? There's the word of knowledge. God would tell Elijah the plans and Elijah would tell the king. And they would escape the destruction by the Syrians. And there are other examples in the Old Testament. But that's what suffices us that the word of knowledge is present in the Old Testament. Now in the New Testament we should find some of the same. The New Testament, the word of knowledge. Peter's confession. Remember at Matthew 16, 16. Um, Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi, uh, where Jesus says, uh, who do men say that I am? They say, well, some say you're Elijah, some John the Baptist. But they said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, your name is Petros, or blessed thou art son by Jonah, flesh and blood is not revealed to you, but my Father in heaven, upon this rock I will build my church, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Okay? Now, Jesus said, flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. A word of knowledge. Okay? In fact, that's how you and I got saved. By a word of knowledge from God. He revealed to you and I that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, who died for your sins and could forgive you of your sins. There's no other way you could know that fact. (laughs) You could read it on paper. But to know that fact in your heart that it's true... That's a word of knowledge from God so you can be saved. It's a form of it. Jesus told Peter at another time in Matthew seventeen twenty seven to go to the sea, cast in the hook, and the first fish that he would bring up, he was to pull a coin out of his mouth to go pay taxes. Now, that'd be great right now. Taxes is next month. A word of knowledge. It dealt with the present, right? 
Ananias Sapphira in Acts 4, 34 through 35 and chapter 5 of Acts 1 through 4. They lied about the sale price of their property, being private to it. And God revealed it to Peter. They lied in the past and they were lying in the present. And God dealt with them and chastened them and struck them dead. Now, it wasn't that that God wanted all their money. It's that they said they had given all their money. They had lied to the Holy Spirit, to God. Read the text very carefully. So God gives a word of knowledge to Peter. Ananias, why has it been in your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Word of knowledge. In Acts chapter 10, 1 through 8, God revealed to Cornelius where to find Peter at Joppa. Joppa's praying. He has this vision at lunchtime. God says, take, kill, and eat, Peter. He says, not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything unclean. He says, never call common anything I've cleansed. And he gives them a vision. There are going to be some men coming to you. And when they ask for you, doubt nothing, go with them. God gives them a word of knowledge. It was at the ninth hour, the time of prayer. The time when Jesus was crucified, by the way. In Luke 23, 44. And prayer in Acts 3, 1 gives you that same hour. Cornelius was, sent, was to send men to Joppa for Peter. So God gives Cornelius a word of knowledge. The Spirit revealed to Peter a word of knowledge also at Joppa about the three men coming to him in Acts ten nineteen. So God gives a word of knowledge to Cornelius and a word of knowledge to Peter about each other, dealing with the present. Information they would not know otherwise. Now, the abuse of the word of knowledge is great. Some people simply make things up as hard as it may seem to you if you're naive. And they say that God told them to tell you. Some guys say, well, God told me that um, you're to give me some money. You know, you may, if you kind of just giggle at that, it's because you've been around. But when people come out of the world and they love the Lord and they trust the Lord, they just trust people who supposedly are older in the Lord and that they would never rip them off like the world does, but they do. And people abuse the people of God. God help them. And so people beg. And they manipulate people financially. And people give. People allow themselves to get ripped off in the name of God. And some of the biggest rip-offs stand behind pulpits. There was a time when all Calvary chapels acknowledged this and taught this. Pastor Chuck is the one who came out of the denominations because those were the practices of denominations. Now, many of the Calvaries are going back into that denominational stand, begging and letters and everything else. It's a sad day. Some will come and tell you, young ladies, you know, God told me that you're supposed to marry me. And you don't know how many women have obeyed stuff like that and thinking it was God or vice versa and what a mess they make of their life. 
when we're talking about it, it seems ridiculous. And I would never, but how many people get destroyed with stuff like that? Or that God told them to tell you to go on the mission field. They prophesy over you. And let me tell you, you have a direct contact with God. If God wants you to give money somewhere, if God wants you to marry someone, if God wants you to go to the mission field, He knows your telephone number. He knows where you live. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He will tell you first. And when that person, if he comes as a confirmation, it will not be news to you. It will be confirmation and affirmation of what God has been dealing with you. If what is told to you is news and shocking, run. Because it's not God. Simple. There are many wannabe prophets and false prophets today working from within the church. A person is to examine and verify the word of knowledge, not simply just blindly give in to it and accept it. Accept and verify. That God has already spoken to you, as I said you will be the first to know directly from God. If it is God, then wait until He does it. If God told you you're going to go to the mission field, you seek Him and let Him open those doors. Don't just move, start making plans on yourself. You sell your house, this and that, and God maybe had you to be a missionary, but not for another year. And now you go start doing things, and really you're bringing burdens on you and your family that God never intended. And you're telling everybody how much you're sacrificing for God. You're carnal. You're out of tune with God. I've seen much of this in the 40-some years I've been in the Lord. And so people get bitter and blame God. No, you messed up. God didn't mess up. God doesn't mess up. We mess up. The gifts here of a word of knowledge deals with the past and the present. Second, the gift of a word of wisdom. Here again in 1 Corinthians 12, 8, the first part of it. It says, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. So that both of them are operative by the same Spirit. Now the definition of the word of wisdom is as follows. A supernatural revelation by the Holy Spirit of divine purpose concerning people, things, or events. The word of wisdom deals with the present and the future. Word of knowledge is present and past. Word of wisdom is present to future. The word of wisdom is not the ability again to make perfect decisions at all times. Word of wisdom is distinct from wisdom. A word of knowledge is distinct from knowledge. Okay? The word of wisdom, having been received, does not mean that you may always manifest it. Even as Peter, who attempted to rebuke Jesus for declaring his death right after he had received the word of knowledge that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And Jesus revealed in, John, in Matthew 16, 16, 22 through 23, that he's going to go suffer. And Peter says, not so, Lord, over my dead body. He says, get thee behind me, Satan. You do not discern the things of God. One thousand of a second, he's very sensitive to the Spirit of God. The next thousand of a second, he's 100% beef. We can go from the Spirit to the flesh at lightning speed, ladies and gentlemen. The word of wisdom often works hand in hand with the word of knowledge. They work together. At times, it is difficult to separate them and even distinguish them where one begins and the other one ends. And as we will see as we work through the gifts, usually gifts work in multi-number of gifts, not just one. Again, if this is a true biblical definition of a word of uh, wisdom, we should find evidence in the Old Testament of it. If you remember once again in 1 Samuel 3.13, the same passage we saw, word of knowledge. God revealed to Samuel not only a word of knowledge, but a word of wisdom because it revealed the purpose of God concerning Eli and his house, judgment. So the word of knowledge was their evil. The word of wisdom, I'm going to judge them. The word of knowledge dealt with the present and the past. The word of wisdom dealt with the present to the future. I'm going to judge them, and you know he did. Okay? So we need to ask God what to do with the word of knowledge, word of wisdom. Lord, do you want me to just talk to the person? Or am I supposed to just pray until you direct and guide me? Because if God wants you to pray about the word of knowledge that he's giving you, and you just open your big mouth, you can destroy a person, right? You not only need the information that's from God, but the timing. So you and I need to take full, careful responsibility that we're dealing with people's lives. And not simply things that make us look spiritual and bring attention to us. It can devastate a person. So there is great responsibility to that privilege that we have. A young captive girl in 2 Kings 5, 1 through 12, you remember, revealed to the wife of Naaman that there was a prophet in Samaria able to heal Naaman's leprosy. And when he arrived, Elisha gave to Hazai, his servant, a word of wisdom to declare to Naaman. Go dip yourself in the Jordan. That was a word of wisdom. Gehazi told Naaman to go dip himself in the Jordan seven times and he would be clean. He became angry. Now when we study the other gifts, you have a lot of things. You have a word of wisdom. You also then have the gift of faith as a servant encourages him to believe. And you have the miracle of being cleansed. And then you have him born again. You have five things that happen all at one time to Naaman. They're all connected to the gifts of the Spirit of God. They didn't happen in a vacuum. Now the New Testament also provides us evidence of the same word of wisdom. In Acts chapter 10, once again, I'm trying to work them so we have the same 
uh, text so you can see how they work together. Not only did Cornelius receive a word of knowledge as to where to find Peter, but Peter also received the word of knowledge about the three men in verse 19 of chapter 10. And in verse 20, a word of wisdom revealed the purpose of God in relationship to the Gentiles to be part of the church. So the word of knowledge was, these men are going to come for you. The word of wisdom is, God is opening the door to the Gentiles to be part of the church. It dealt with the present to the future. Word of wisdom. There's no way Peter would understand or believe or know that. Unless God revealed it to him. Did he not just say, not so, Lord? Which is a contradiction. You can't say no and Lord in the same sentence. An angel told Joseph to take Christ, the Christ child to Egypt in Matthew 2.13 also. For Herod was determined to kill him. A word of wisdom. Dealing with the present and the future. What to do, it shows purpose, intent. It's not just information, but what to do with that information. Here we have that word of knowledge and wisdom together. The fact and what to do about it. Both of them together. Word of knowledge, word of wisdom. It is not natural wisdom acquired by experience or knowledge. But a word of wisdom and a word of knowledge working together. Many attribute or attribute and identify these two gifts as natural and learned abilities dealing with understanding of the word of God and classify wisdom and knowledge with an explanation of the word of God. Not so. I reject that. It is a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge, supernatural gifts. James 1.5 gives you regular wisdom, which is from above, divine, but it's not the or a word of wisdom. In Colossians 2.5 and 2.3, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That wisdom and knowledge is the divine knowledge he gives to us, distinct from a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom. Don't, do not confuse them. Time in the Lord, by the way, is no factor. Seniority does not count. For Samuel was just a boy. Eli was an aged man. And God spoke to Samuel because Eli had turned a deaf ear to God. The abuse of a word of wisdom is nothing new like any other abuse of spiritual things. The word of wisdom can be abused like the word of knowledge. So again, you verify it by the word of God and let God confirm it to you personally. You do not act or move on the words of someone telling you, God told me for you to do this. Okay? God knows where you live. God has been dealing with you and this will be confirmation, not news. Is that clear? Very important. So the gift of a word of wisdom deals with the purposes of God dealing with the present and the future. 
We see the evidence in both of these gifts in the Old and the New Testament. The third gift that we wanted to look at tonight is the gift of discerning of spirits. Now, there in 1 Corinthians 12.10 in the middle, to another discerning of spirits. Notice how he words it. The definition of the gift of discerning of spirits is as follows. The gift of discerning of spirits is a supernatural revelation by the Holy Spirit of satanic spirits in operation as the source and manifestation. The gift of discerning of spirit is not the gift of discerning or discernment. I hear that all the time from Christians. Well, you know, he has the gift of discerning. You want to show me that in the scriptures? There's no such gift. Give me a verse. It's not what it's talking about. It's the discerning of spirits that satanic spirits are present or active. There is no such gift as discerning of uh, a gift of discernment or discerning as one of the gifts of the spirit. The discerning of spirit is not yours in terms of feelings or intuition. It's absolute knowledge, almost working like a word of knowledge, but it's confined to the area of demonic spirits. That's the distinction of this gift. The discerning of spirit is not uh, suspicions. Uh, It's not natural insight or discernment because you've lived in this world long enough and you know body types and culture and races and whatever. It's none of that. Or you're a good sociologist or a good psychologist or whatever, or anthropologist. No, it's none of that. The gift has been misunderstood, therefore abused and misused. The particular gift of discerning of spirits, and notice the spirits plural, is protection against those possessed and controlled by satanic spirits. Because that individual is able to exercise those demons for delivering that individual and to understand the slavery of those people. The Bible warns us of the infiltration of the enemy in the church, the wolves, false teachers, and false prophets, wheat among the tares, Matthew 13. False prophets and teachers in 1 John 4, 1 and 2, we should test the spirit, not believe every spirit. 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3, they will have many following false teachers inside the church. There are only three kinds of spirits, ladies and gentlemen. Divine, satanic, and human. Only three kinds of spirits. Now, the New Testament evidence of the gift of discerning the spirits is very, very clear. In Mark 5, the demoniac at Gadara in the tomb was confronted by Jesus and the demons were cast into the swine. Jesus had the gift of discerning of spirits. I don't think you find that hard to believe. <laughs> okay? The father asked in Luke 9.37, he asked Jesus to deliver his only son of the demon that was possessing him. 
Elam is the sorcerer in Acts 13, 6 through 12. At Cyprus attempted to turn Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, away from the faith. Listen to Paul, his words in Acts 13, 6 through 12. And Paul said, O fool of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all, all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now, indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you should be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed. Then he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So there Paul gets a word of knowledge. He's possessed. He has a discerning of spirits. He gives a word of wisdom of judgment what's going to happen. And a miracle happens. The guy can't see. You have four or five gifts happening all in multi-combination at the same time. The damsel possessed at Philippi was delivered by Paul in Acts 16, 16 through 18. It says, now it happened as we went to prayer there in, uh, in Acts 16, 16, that a certain uh, slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. The girl followed Paul and us and cried out, us is Luke writing, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaimed to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to, her, to the Spirit, the gift of discerning the spirits. To the Spirit, he speaks. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out of her that very hour. The gift of discerning of spirits, demonic spirits. It's not the gift of discernment. It's not... The gift of discerning. There's no such animal. Acts 19, 13 through 17. The, sons of, the seven sons of Sceva at Ephesus. You remember them. Then some of the um, itinerary Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus Christ over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exercise you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, and Jewish chief priests who did so. And the evil spirits answered and said, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? And then the men in whom the evil spirit was leaped upon them, overpowered them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all the Jews and the Greeks dwelling in Ephesus and fear fell on them all and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ was magnified. If you do not have the gift of discerning the spirits of the anointing for that ministry, don't go looking for demons. Don't presume on a gift that you do not have or have been called to as a ministry. Now, I don't, I don't look for Satan. If I come across a demon-possessed person, I confirm the name of Jesus. I feel I have the authority, but I don't go looking for them. Now, some people have that type of ministry, and that's God calls them and anoints them. But 
Any one of us can confront when the issue comes, but you don't become presumptuous. Now, the principle of demon possession is very clear. In Matthew 12, 43 through 45, the Lord gives us the principle of possession and exorcism. Listen carefully. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, so man's possessed, the spirit is exercised, he goes to dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept and put in order. Then he goes and seeks with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first, so shall it also be with this wicked generation. Now, if a person is exercised, delivered from a demon, the next thing that has to happen is for you to preach the gospel that they accept Jesus Christ, because that darkness has just left that house's void. And unless that house, his temple is filled with light, by salvation through Jesus Christ, that demon will come back with seven another one and his latter state will be worse than the first. Are we clear on that? These are the words of Jesus. Okay? Lester Sumrall, a missionary in the Philippines back in the 1950s, gave an account of a young girl, I believe her, her name was uh, um, Chloe or Clarita, something like that. And she was being sexually molested by demons inside the jail in such a way that nobody could get at her. She had bites behind her, everything else. Everybody was joking about it. But they found hair on her hand that was not be able to be traced human or whatever. And it's very well documented. Go on the internet, Lester Summerall, demon-possessed girl, Clorita, in the Philippines in the 1950s. Okay? When you're dealing with the demon world, you're dealing with the supernatural Okay? The opposite of light. People mock it. I would not. The latter days will be characterized by seducing spirits. 1 Timothy 4.1 says, We have seen more demon activity in the United States because all the foreigners are bringing their little gods to our nation. The amount of drug trafficking that goes on and drug activity in American populace Opens up the door, pharmacia, pharmaceuticals, to demon possession, demon activity. Look at the movies that Hollywood puts out. I don't know what it is that people have with zombies. With vampires. With evil spirits. We have people talking to demons on radio, on television, crossing over. Some of these people are charlatans, some of them are not. But even police departments get into the paranormal. We're seeking out truth and solving crimes, okay? We don't think it's taboo anymore. It's not a game. No Christian can be demon-possessed. The believer can be oppressed, harassed, and some Christians can even be confronted by demon activity, but you cannot be possessed. There are some Christians, for whatever reason, God allows activities to go on and... And yet you're to confront it in the name of Jesus. There was a son of one of our pastors years ago, 20-some years ago, where he would see demons in the house and activity. Why did God allow that? We have no idea. But he confronted things in the name of Jesus. He is sound and sane and clothed today. He has never possessed or anything like that, but he had to deal with those issues. If there is a willful meddling or ignorance about demons and 
the fighting and dealing with them with natural abilities, it will be futile. It must be through a word of knowledge, wisdom, discerning of spirits, and God's dealing with the whole armor of God and the word of God. Those who supposedly cast out demons from Christians, which is a lie, through deliverance ministries. Uh, how interesting. They say you have the demon of gluttony, the demon of lust, the demon of smoking, the demon of this. And they give more glory and attention to the Satan than to Jesus Christ. How interesting that the, the demon of lust comes upon you when you're over your girlfriend's house at 2 in the morning. What are you doing there at 2 in the morning? It's not a demon. It's your flesh. You're carnal. And you should have hands laid on, but in a different way. Works of the flesh. Read them in Galatians 5.19. Peter Wagner and the late John Wimber used to teach signs and wonders here at Fuller Seminary. About Christians being demonized, wrapping around you. A lie. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. First John 4, 4. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Light and darkness cannot occupy the same vessel. Second Corinthians 6, 14. Very, very clear. Your body is a temple. First Corinthians 6, 19. Only the unbeliever can be demon-possessed. There's not one evidence of one believer being possessed in the New Testament or the Old Testament. Not one. On what basis do you teach that Christians can be demon-possessed? Your experience means absolutely nothing if you can't find scriptural evidence for it. The important thing to understand is that not all or every physical malady is related to demon possession. Because you know that in the scriptures it tells us that sometimes maladies, deafness, muteness was related to a demon. But for you to conclude that everybody who's deaf or dumb, dumb in the mouth, not in the brain is demon-possessed, is wrong. Sometimes it's just a physical abnormality or an accident or whatever's happened, okay? So you have to be real careful. Begin with a complete physical, a blood workup with a reputable doctor and then move from there out unless you have some kind of manifestation and demon activity that is very evident you don't need a doctor. You need a Christian to lay hands on and pray, okay? And cast demons out. Some people just like attention and sometimes they want to blame things on Satan. And they act weird because they want attention. So a lot of these people go to these deliverance ministries to get attention. For people to lay hands on them and to pray over them. And say, oh, come here. This, oh, brother. You know, they need to be slapped. You're spending an entire hour giving glory to Satan. That he has control over Christians? On what basis? Where's the text? Where's the scripture? I don't care what you see. I don't care what you hear. Where's the scripture? There's none. It's carnality. The gift of discerning a spirit is recognizing the operation or manifestation of satanic spirits, demons, and confronting them. Where someone would walk in and you would have the word, the gift of discerning the spirits, and God would give you a word of knowledge. The guy who just walked in is demon possessed. I want you to go sit by him. There's your word of knowledge. 
I mean word of wisdom. The information that his demon possesses is a word of knowledge. Go sit by him, that's a word of wisdom. That you know he's demon possessed, that's the gift of discerning of spirits. God uses those gifts automatically, naturally. Every week, those gifts are operative here in a normal way, not in a circus-type atmosphere. And the church functions, the children's ministry, the teens, here in the main sanctuary, everything all the time. We need the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Decent, in order, never calling attention to myself and God working in and through us building his body up, protecting it, making it effective for his glory and no one else. And so, the gifts of revelation are the eyes and mind of God in the midst of his people, the church. The gift of a word of knowledge, the gift of a word of wisdom, and the gift of discerning the spirits. Paul the Apostle says, what do you have that you have not received? And if you have received it, why are you boasting (laughs) as if you didn't receive it? What a privilege we have. God help us that we would misrepresent God and abuse and misuse the gifts that he would give to us for our own attention or glory. Father, thank you for your grace and your goodness. We thank you for your word and we thank you for your grace and just your blessing upon our life as we study, as we see your reality in our own life, as we can put our fingers on the scriptures and see clearly your gifts, Lord. I pray that you would disperse your gifts among the people here at Calvary Chapel, Pasadena, that it would be an operation and function and effectiveness As we gather together, Lord, you putting everything together. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then God has brought you here to be saved. If you believe Jesus, God who became man, died for your sins and rose from the dead, then you now must make a decision to be saved or to be lost. No decision is a decision in itself. You choose not to choose. To not choose Jesus is to reject Jesus. To not believe what the Word of God says about Jesus is to deny the Word of God. You can't have it both ways. It's one or the other. Either willfully or by default. But if you want to be born again or maybe you're over the Internet... This is your prayer of repentance if you want your sins forgiven. And he's going to save you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.